Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. Today's guest is Rennie Edo-Lodge. She is a London-based award-winning journalist and she is now the author of the book Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, which was published by Bloomsbury Books in the UK, Australia and New Zealand. It came out on June the 1st, so it's out now and I definitely recommend you go and get a copy. There's lots of reviews out already uh, about the book and they're all really positive also man booker prize winner marlon james has given a quote for the back cover and he calls it essential and begging to be written her writing can also be found at the new york times british vogue the telegraph the guardian the independent stylist which actually she was on the cover last week of stylist magazine in the run-up to the launch of the book which is amazing and she's also written for the pool and many many more Her writing has been highly commended by Channel 4's Best Young Blogger competition back in 2010. She was also listed in the Daily Telegraph's Women to Follow on Twitter list in 2013. And in 2014, The Voice newspaper named her in their list of ones to watch. Rennie has appeared on Sky News, Women's Hour, and frequently is on the radio discussing feminist issues. She also was a judge for the BBC Women's Hour Power List in 2014, which is incredible. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I really loved meeting Rennie and we had a good old chat. So I hope you enjoy and here it is. Rennie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Like I say, big fan. So congratulations on your book. I've just spent ages before hitting record being like, it's amazing, but truly so well written and so much research in your voice it's awesome thank you thank you are you feeling kind of relieved that it's finally in hardback printed bound was that a lot of work i must say i think i knew that the research i needed was integral and but it was hard and it it was like a nine to five job yeah definitely Mm -hmm. and i spent a lot of time like down the British Library and at the Black Cultural Archives in Brixton, sort of just like rifling through archive documents because it was also not easy to come across. And, you know, I write in the book that these are things that you just don't really know unless you go away and do the self-directed study, which, mm-hmm. like, who's got, who's got the time to do that? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think the good thing about working with a publisher and getting a sort of like a small boost of investment is that that does buy you time. Yeah. So that's what I did. And... You know, I think a lot of people I've spoken to are, have talked about the research and I suppose I think these are all things that I think a lot of people peripherally feel but you know the evidence is out there mm-hmm. um, a lot of it I felt like I should have known mm-hmm. I think that was just part of reading it was like I knew about this but did I really know about it in detail mm-hmm. I love reading your blog as well because you do write on their kind of blog posts obviously the book started from a blog post yeah, yeah, yeah. but there was one that I thought was really interesting where you wrote about how like a lot of writers have distance with their subject matter like mm. I write about technology and I'm kind of interested in it and I write mm. about it and then I go home and I make my dinner and I don't think about it anymore and I was thinking about what you were saying about when you're writing about race that's not something you can pick up and leave it's it's so part of your whole life um, well, actually, I feel like the more that this has become like a, a job for me, the more distance I feel. But but then I also I feel that's because I, f- I feel adequately heard now. Whereas when I first started writing about race and feminism and inequality, I was like 19. Um, and, and I felt deeply then that this perspective was not out in, in the wild. But, but now I've got to this point where 
you know, I really feel it is. And I feel I'm contributing to a very strong canon, Mm -hmm. not necessarily of British writers, but a strong, you know, canon of American writers, South African writers, you know, Australian writers. And so I, I feel, I think, much more at peace. But for a long time, I did really feel like I had skin in the game because it wasn't just about writing. It was almost like being an advocate and being sort of like a touch point of teaching and and information, which I was not prepared to be any of those things. I was just simply expressing myself online. And then people were like, oh, tell me more, tell me more. And that was, even though they approached me with, you know, good-natured curiosity, that was almost as as taxing as mm. as dealing with um, angry defensiveness. Because I was, like, in my early 20s, basically unemployed, freelancing a little bit here, there, and everywhere. Like, mm. certainly not equipped for any of that at all. Because I didn't actually read the date on the blog post, the, the, mm. the first blog post of the title of the book. Was early which 20- I should say, by the way, I'm going to put an yeah, intro in anyway, but yeah. why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. So that mm. was the title of the blog post. But was that, how long ago was that? So that was early 2014. Right. Maybe February 2014 that I wrote that. So isn't it strange as well to think back that even, that's not that long ago, but mm. how you must have felt so even more frustrated than you do now, maybe. Mm. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean... I think that what people don't understand when looking at the cover and the title is, you know, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. It wasn't for want of trying, you know. Like I wrote that blog post after a long time of trying and failing mm. and really feeling like I was just banging my head against a brick wall here. And just meeting this wall of defiance, of hostility and finding myself uh, pinpointed as a problem rather than broader racism. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, in that opening essay, when I say I can no longer have a conversation about the nuances of a problem with people who don't even want to accept that there's a problem in the first place. Yeah, I was absolutely exhausted and frustrated and, and frankly in a negative place. Mm. And when I pub- press publish, a lot of I couldn't believe the impact it had because so many people resonated. But it's amazingly written in the sense of like you've obviously reached a point where you're like I'm not doing this anymore and mm. it's understandable but when you're reading it like you're it, it you're writing it in a way that you're actually being really open mm. and it's like you feel really connected with you mm. and so that's it's really powerful thank you I mean I've always I've always been a big writer and reader and I've you know I've always kept diaries and attempted to try and process my feelings through writing so that's absolutely what that was mm. it almost felt like a bit of a like out of body experience in terms of just But, you know, it was a way for me to articulate myself because I was struggling in face-to-face conversations. I was struggling because I was personally connected to the issues and I was being told, you're lying or, you know, this is all in your head. Mm. Um, It was harder and harder. And so, you know, in writing that, I I was able to articulate exactly how I was feeling, but also that really got through to people, both people who were and weren't affected by the issues. Mm because like you own your experiences your experiences are real for anyone to have a say on your on your experiences is just like mind-blowing yeah but I also think that this isn't necessarily about personal experience I mean you know I've grown up around communities you know from day one my mum was always saying to me you know you'll have to work twice as hard as your Mm. white counterparts for half the reward and there was always an understanding among the you know the diaspora community that I was in that yeah, there will be structural racism face that you'll face there. But but I know as I grew up and became somebody, a journalist who had access to information that people in the communities that I grew up with didn't, mm. you know, I, I looked at the stats, you know, the Department for Education, the Department for Work and Pensions, census data, you know, academics. These are not particularly like biased um, 
organizations and it was all saying the same that you know if you were born back in this country you you are faced with a disadvantage mm-hmm. like a black boy is three times as likely as the rest of the school population to be excluded from school if he makes it through school and he's in year six doing his sats he will be undermarked black children are much more likely to be undermarked by their own teachers that's something that's rectified by anonymous marking you know we all need to go to school and Mm. and clearly there we're seeing a racial bias that's infecting like equality of opportunity in universities black kids are much more likely to go into higher education but much less likely to get into best institutions when they are in higher education much more likely to get lower grades Again, like lots of universities try to rectify that with anonymous marking. You know, then in employment, we all need a job, right? Mm. Like that's not something that we can avoid doing. But we, but we see, you know, um, the Nash, NATSEN on behalf of the DWP, so the Department for Work and Pensions, basically did a study that found that people with African and Asian sounding names are called to interview far less often than people with white sounding names. But we all need a job. And, and then, you know, if you are, if you do manage to get the job, being a black person you're you there's actually a wage gap that increases the more qualified you are and so it wasn't just all in my head it, that's not just my experience that is like hard evidence from pretty reputable um you know institutions that all confirm the same thing you know nhs as well like um the david and bennett inquiry that was basically launched after a black man um died in psychiatric care found that black people were much more likely to be um, sectioned against their will because they were perceived as aggressive in a way that the, that the white counterparts weren't. Like, it's it's actually terrifying. It wasn't all in my head. No. And, and what I was able to do as a journalist with access to data and also not just access to it, but understanding how to interpret it, I was able to sort of knit together a big picture thing. And I, and I feel like lots of people have been wanting to say that for a long time, but haven't had access to that information to be able to say it because the chapter on white privilege is like that that's why it's so powerful that chapter because it's like all encompassing and kind of invisible and what was i found really interesting as well is um when you were saying how you had to put your twitter account on private because Mm. like you you were in a job interview or something and it was that sort of thing as well as like you then can't be as outspoken as you want to be about Mm. this which is like really messed up yeah absolutely and i think you know, I was saying to somebody the other day that yeah, I started writing about race and feminism and inequality in like my very early 20s, where, in which I had no stake in society. And actually writing about it has given me a stake in society. Mm-hmm. But I think if I'd taken a safer route and um, just seamlessly got a nine to five, there would be like literally economic pressures on me not to speak out. You know, like in that section of the book, I talk about, you know, it is... It is a situ- it is a fact that your boss is more likely to be white, mm-hmm. and so you don't want to piss off your boss. So you don't want to say anything that makes them feel angry mm-hmm. and and makes them feel that you are saying that they are racist because that could literally put your livelihood in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Same way, it's more likely that your landlord's going to be white um, simply because of the stats about race and power and wealth in our society. So again, do you want to put your living situation at risk do you want to put your job at risk no so you'll just stay quiet and you'll speak about it amongst your friends or or like-minded people also the bit about feminism well Mm. the bit the whole chapter which is incredible and also kind of it's weird even looking back because i guess we're the same age Mm. and i kind of my gateway drug into feminism were white women like catlin moran because Mm. that was like what i'd first found in the bookshop that i was like i can 
relate to this mm. 100%. And then you kind of start educating yourself or people start educating you. You need to see this as a whole intersectional spectrum. But then I was thinking, do you think the younger generation, because they have access to Twitter during mm. their teen years and they probably follow a whole mixture of people just from day one, it's like they're immediately looking at intersectional feminism from like age 13. Mm. I, I think in my experience, young people are definitely more woke. I hate that <laughs> word, right? But like, I speak a little bit in the book about going to speak at a sixth form and just being absolutely blown away by their awareness of things. Mm. But you know, I think that, that has been in part because of Lena Dunham and Beyonce and Janelle Monet and lots of other like, lots of celebrity faces that would have been reluctant to talk about these things 20 years ago because it would, it, you know, there would there's a financial incentive not to speak about it but you know I think like Beyonce Beyonce's big feminist backdrop on on that performance that she did once was a huge turning point so I still think that that, all of that gateway drug stuff is important I suppose in my feminism chapter what what distressed me the most back then was when black women were saying oh hi we exist there was just so much hostility Mm -hmm. (laughs) there was so much hostility and that you know, I don't call myself a feminist activist anymore, and, and I think that's one of the reasons. Mm. Even though I still strongly, strongly, like a lot of my values are very, very feminist, I couldn't take that hostility. It was just overwhelmingly negative. Yeah. Mm. Well, because that's one reason I'm doing this podcast as well, is because I feel like 40 minutes talking to someone is always going to win over a tweet mm. or even like a short blog post in response to something. Like it's just a, it's just a format where you're talking to someone, mm. and I feel like you know from reading your blog post all those years ago it felt like there was such an awkwardness around talking about stuff mm. and like defensiveness and it's not a real conversation mm. how do you feel like people can open up a bit more and like not and just get rid of any awkwardness and just be like I'm just wanting to learn I'm wanting to talk wanting mm. to share I think it's a, a difficult one because I know that back then I was trying to put forward this perspective but also people asking so much of me yeah. please educate me that was hard That's so not your job yeah because <laughs> I wasn't a teacher nor an academic. No one was paying me. Obviously, you're like what twenty? <laughs> yeah, I was like twenty three or, or twenty four at that point. So, but the the information is out there. I think sometimes the retort to that has been, "Well, Google is free," but like, look at this fake news problem. We all know that there's anything out there, and, yeah. and so like that's a lot of the reason why I've written this book. It's almost as a, a primer for people who are sort of broadly interested in these issues but don't know where to start, mm-hmm. as well as hopefully catharsis for people who are very interested in these issues but don't have the language to sort of articulate their opposition to things Mm, that's why this book's so so crucial Mm. because i think it's one of those it's one of those books where i've finished reading it but i'm like right now i have to go and give it to people Mm. like share it with my friends you know it's that that book where it's like go and buy more copies and share it around i know blogging isn't new but do you feel that it's kind of a bit of a lesson that you can pass on to other people who have something to say that things can start from as something as simple as writing a blog post, just putting something out there onto the internet and kind of la- allowing it to grow. You don't kind of have to wait now for someone to be like tapping on the shoulder and being like, here's a magazine column, for example. I would say, yeah, things can definitely start there. Um, my my issue, I think, is um, I'm I'm a big believer in writers being invested in in order to really Mm -hmm. explore their ideas and and do the research and um, blogging is never really gonna unless you've already got that time that independent wealth which let's be honest lots of people don't 
it's never going to take you to that point it'll only get you so far I knew that I only got so far I tried to make a bit of a career in freelance journalism to make these arguments that I'm making in the book I wasn't really getting anywhere I was being called on by magazines and newspapers to write a freelance piece about race in response to a pop culture moment for 50 quid here 100 quid there Mm -hmm. 200 there but nobody was really interested in investing in me as a black writer and I looked around um, at other countries I think the US is a great example of um really incredible long-form investigative well-researched reporting uh, not just opinion but you know opinion based Mm -hmm. on good reporting around racial inequality and I saw that while I was doing a response to a pop culture moment or a opinion piece on cultural appropriation I was never going to be able to do that which is why I basically stopped and um, tried to make the book happen so yeah writing on the internet is good but Everybody can give their inter- their opinion on the internet. You have to be willing to do the work. And um, especially in, in these conversations about black feminism or intersectional feminism, so much of the work, yeah, it has been done in the US. And mm-hmm. so if you want to find a quick stat, you can find it on Twitter or Tumblr and it will be about the situation in the States. Yeah. Okay, fine, that's useful and great to know. But I knew I wanted to know what's going on in my own country. And that's harder. It it means beyond sort of scrolling through your timeline, it means actually scrolling through the government's website, you know, (laughs) and like, you know, trying to become pally with particular academics who can point you in the right direction. And, you know, I was lucky because I'd been involved in activism. Um, Via my activist links, I also knew people who had been involved in some of the race equality stuff in the 80s. So which really helped me out interview wise but that's a lot harder to access and so yes I think the internet's a brilliant starting point and is a fantastic place to find an audience but I think once I had my audience I thought I, I owed them better work than that especially as I feel like an, a blog post or a comment piece or an op-ed about race race and racism is ten a penny on the internet right now and I, and I thought I sort of owe my readers more Mm -hmm. especially as there was such a dearth of this work in the UK it would have been easy for me to rattle off stuff going on in the US but I made Mm -hmm. a conscious decision not to do this with do that with this book that's so true because I I follow a lot of uh, US writers Mm. and a lot of UK writers but when I'm scrolling through Twitter for example like it all gets kind of merged into one Mm. because I'm you know for, for example like the Black Lives Matter hashtag there was a UK one and there was a US one and then there's one the global one Mm. and it's a bit like what's going on where particularly I think when it comes to race and racism here in Britain we're very quick to be like oh that's an American problem Mm. you know they had that terrible slavery that was really bad it was the transatlantic slave trade like Britain had an active role in that Liverpool many places in Wales Bristol many of these places um, were basically built on the on that money like let's not be in denial about that I, I recognise that that history is hard actually to come by because you know history is kind of written by the winners right so mm. and Britain is not very forthcoming about its less savoury parts of its you know mm. global presence and and so I also felt a duty with this book to make that known again yeah I, I'm guessing because there's this kind of like gap in the UK research and you've you've done like filled a lot of that with this book um, 
God, that's only going to be a positive thing um, for young writers mm. looking at what you're doing. I do hope so. I mean, nobody said that I'm a role model, <laughs> at least not yet. Um, but what I do hope is that, well, first off, I hope that it encourages young writers to go off and do this sort of similar work for their respective passions. But also I hope that, you know, you can have all the will in the world, you can want to do it, but you have a nine to five or you're mm. doing shift work. Yeah. And or you've got childcare responsibilities. Uh, what I want is the organisations responsible for our culture, publishing houses, magazines, mm-hmm. newspapers, to invest in yeah. those underrepresented voices, which frankly, is not happening. It's not. You know, I look at my peers, and the vast majority are Oxbridge. When I look at people doing similar work to me, yeah, and that's a huge problem. Those are the people being invested in. I was going to say because the back on the back there's a quote um, by Marlon James, um, no less. Um, This is the kind of book that demands a future where we'll no longer need such a book. And I was thinking, is is it kind of as well one of those things where one day there won't be someone writing about race and there won't be someone writing about feminism? Mm. Like there won't be writers writing about those topics because isn't the goal that we don't need to talk about it? Yeah, I mean definitely that's it end goal but I don't see that happening in my lifetime I don't Mm -hmm. know if you do Uh, I I think that change is incremental and we all do what we can while we can to contribute to change because it's true that this situation that I'm in now would not have existed even 30 years ago let alone 50 years Mm -hmm. ago and that you know I stand on the backs of you know other black British writers and and black writers who have all been writing in the English language to be able to do this Mm -hmm. Um, but even when I was looking um, you know, you know, you, you've written a book. So when you you're looking around at what your competition is, what's already out there, you know, when you're getting your proposal together, and there was literally nothing that had been published in the UK for the last thirty years, save for like, you know, some of Stuart Hall's work had been um, republished because he'd passed away, you know, in the last few years, but very little actually, very little specific British context. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, That's crazy. Th- like, I'm just I'm thinking that like if we are not continuing continually trying to address this we'll never see a future where it's no longer relevant we will never see mm-hmm. that because you know it's just like if you've got a broken leg you just keep walking on it <laughs> you know like no you try and fix it you know yeah uh, and I, I feel like that with this the last year election wise shocked a lot of people but honestly it didn't shock me mm-hmm. absolutely not and um I was like at, at a event on the like day of the US election like the aftermath with a friend who's a very famous feminist writer. And she was like super duper shocked and upset about it. And I was like, but I'm, I'm not though. <laughs> like, I just, no. I'm absolutely not shocked by this at all because, you know, black and brown writers have been talking about these issues for a very, very long time. Um, and we've not really been embraced into the mainstream in talking about these issues. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and, and also in particular, I think black and brown writers, feminist writers, and black and brown feminist writers five, six, seven years ago were really the canary in the coal mine for what we now know as the alt-right. A hugely, like, influential political force. But five, six, seven years ago when the people who were, like, harmlessly blogging about feminism and race on the internet were saying, hey, um, white supremacist trolls keep trying to dox me and Mm. (laughs) say they're going to bomb my house. I feel like people people were very complacent and they were like, oh doesn't really matter don't take it seriously (laughs) you know like word complacent isn't mm, it utterly complacent and i'm really committed to a kind of color blindness which is well actually 
by you talking about race in this way, you're actually making the problem worse. Like mm. the only way to um, end racism is just never to talk about it. And that really put us in a difficult position. Yeah, that's, that's um, one thing that I loved in the book. Like the, I, want, I wrote it down actually. Um, racism against white people does not exist. Yeah, I mean, certainly there can be prejudice against white people. Do not get me wrong. But racism is prejudice plus power. I think lots of people can be prejudiced, certainly. Um, people of all races, but but racism is about having the power to negatively affect somebody's life chances because of those prejudices. Mm-hmm. And there's a little anecdote that I have in the book about... Um, going to buy some Caribbean food and the man, smiling black man behind the counter waits until his like, white customers leave and then he's like, ha, 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 I'm going to give you the, the best cut of meat because I save it for us, hee, <laughs> lol. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I sort of say in the book, yeah, that guy was definitely prejudiced against white people, but he's not in a position where he's their landlord, no. their boss, their teacher. Um, he can't affect their, negatively affect their life chances. No. He's not about to hire them. And frankly, black people are like extremely underrepresented in all of those roles. Like all he can really affect in any material terms is their lunch. Mm. So he's, <laughs> he's absolutely prejudiced, yeah. But, but that's the only thing. Grand scheme of things, yeah, exactly. Exactly, and I think that, you know, because we've all sort of been raised, well, I think the broad understanding of racism is you know, judging somebody on the colour of their skin rather than looking at it in a systemic way. Um, the lots of white people, well, lots of people in broadly think that just say, even just saying the word white people is racist. Mm-hmm. Like saying the phrase white people is racist, pointing out that white people have a race is racist. Mm-hmm. Mentioning race in any way is racist, which is oh so Oh my God, there was something on Twitter today, Jodie Marsh. I did see that, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And and that I think that's really like if people don't know that, I'm like that's really bad. It's like um on Netflix, the Dear White People. Mm. It's a brilliant show. It's really upset a lot of people, hasn't Why? it? Why? I think that white people are just not used to being described as, as white. white. They're just human. Whereas if you're not white, you're absolutely used to being described by your race as a marker, at least in the Western world. Mm. It's like when people say cis gendered mm. and everyone's like well, I'm what's, normal. What's that? It's like, I'm normal. Yeah, it's like yeah. no, it's it's a very. I think it's a. I think it's a very positive thing when. Mm. Yeah, like you said, there's no normal. Mm. Like, what is that? Doesn't exist. Well, exactly, exactly. But that some people consider themselves to be normal, whilst others are, have to be named. Mm. This is a bit philosophical here, but that is is an indication of a power structure to me. You know that white people just get to be normal, and uh, whereas for as long as I've known. I've been black because people have kept bloody reminding me, mm. you know, yeah. um, from some of my earliest memories. That suggests to me that there's a there's a huge power imbalance there, and I think mm-hmm. you know the title and the cover is extremely uncomfortable for, for some people. I was reading it very openly in the cafe earlier. <laughs> How did that go down? I, do, I was. I just think this is the thing about this book is I think yes, the cover is a bit like ooh. Um, you know, it's going to be shocking for some people. They're going to find it very uncomfortable. Mm. But once you read the contents of the book mm. and, for example, listen to this podcast of you speaking, it's like it's doing something very powerful and it's mm. doing something very necessary. Yeah. And actually, like, that's the whole point of the book. Well, I, I, I do hope so. I think it makes people so uncomfortable because it, the title and the cover, like, unapologetically decenters whiteness. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm a big fiction lover and I've always I've been a big reader and 
fiction, I think, is one of the most powerful tools for us to sort of like empathize. And for as long as I have lived, I've been I've been empathizing via white eyes, particularly through fiction, film, mm. media, books, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because the protagonist is almost always white. Um, and so, you know, it's particularly with writing this, it was very easy to second guess myself because I'm so familiar by the default. I think, mm. you know, especially in the book, I talk God, a little yeah. bit about Harry Potter. Like a, a character oh, yeah. is not Hermione. is not is not not white unless explicitly stated. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I was in my very early years, I was like, well, white people are the good ones, so I must be turning mm-hmm. white eventually. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, that that was something that was so powerful. Like, those those cultural forces were so powerful. Mm-hmm. Like, we are all en- encouraged to empathise with, see the world through white eyes, empathise with white perspectives. And it was easy to second-guess myself in writing this because I knew what bits would upset white people because I- I'm so familiar because... I've read a thousand white narratives and I've watched mm. a, thousand, a thousand white narratives um, and, I, and I kind of know <laughs> what would make people tick. And, and the, the book unapologetically decenters whiteness and I think that's what makes people feel so confronted by it. Mm. You need to see yourself in the context of the world and the mm. context of structure. Otherwise, yeah, it's really damaging. Yeah. I mean, it's like I had to kind of face up to my own thing of, you know... I my memoir came out I'm blonde white girl I know that I have more privilege I, I was just like really aware of that and it that's why I, to, that's why I started the podcast as well is because I was like my point of view doesn't need to be shared well, <laughs> um, point of view is over so... and over again do you mm. know what I mean it's yeah, like yeah. and I mean look at the numbers in the industry you know Nikesh Shukla has been doing great work around this look at the numbers of whose narratives are being published and whose aren't mm-hmm. like what was it less than 100 books by Mm. by like black and brown British authors last year and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of books being published every year so mm. no it's like Issa Rae's sitcom that took years to be made absolutely. way longer than girls for example absolutely you know some people call this unconscious bias mm-hmm. true mm. oh well, thank you so much I could talk to you for hours but thanks but... for having me <laughs> thanks for coming on um when is the book out again so it's out on the 1st of June which oh at God. the time of recording is just over a week I'm like, a bit terrified. I don't know how British, the British public are going to receive it, but it's amazing, and I'm really so excited for you because this book is it needed to be written. I, I'm excited as well. I feel like you know, once once first of June comes round, it's not my book anymore. It's the reader's book. Yeah, <laughs> everybody can interpret it as they wish. Like obviously, I'm going to still like talk to people about it, but as far as I'm concerned, like yeah. I don't, I no longer own the ideas. It's everyone else's book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's everyone's um, to keep forever and ever and ever. So buy the book, everyone, and follow Rennie at what's your? I mean, your blog, your website. Okay, so my website is rennieedolodge.co.uk. That's R E N I E W D O L O D G E. I'm on Twitter at Rennie Rennie, so that's just my name twice. And, and also I'm on Instagram uh, Rennie Edo Lodge all one word so yeah follow me on Instagram amazing and <laughs> if people want to <laughs> if people want to come and see you do anything are you doing any events and stuff yeah so um, I'm basically touring with the book at most of the literary festivals I'm at lots of different interesting exciting places intermittently and I'm sharing those on social media cool. um, because that's the only way I feel yeah. like I can get out to people so check my Twitter and Instagram and, I, and I'm sharing the info amazing you're brilliant and thank you, um, thank, you. thank you for your time wonderful <laughs> <laughs>